Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations. The first three are complete forms of the three edited interviews that comprised episode four. And the second three are previously unreleased sections from our coverage of Nashtag 2023 in episodes one, two, and three of season four. In this conversation, Jorn Schottenberg and I are joined by Pam Danaher, Senior Vice President for Regulatory Affairs at Turns Pharmaceuticals. This conversation focuses on the ways that biopsy has, as Pam puts it, constrained and restrained drug development. Not surprisingly, she also has strong viewpoints and tremendous insights about uses of testing and combination therapy, two issues pivotal to turn strategy. Finally, she comments briefly on what Donna Cryer described in a recent episode as, and I quote, regulatory science, and how the entire community can communicate in ways that support approval of resmeterome and OCA, which will benefit us all. To give you a flavor, this conversation includes roughly 35% more content than the portion published in the initial episode. I have the good fortune to speak weekly with industry executives and academic researchers in unscripted, unrecorded settings. This conversation should bring you some of that feeling as these individuals went home to take lessons from Nashtag for their own work and their own companies. Their perspectives are thoughtful and different. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. So the um, podcast listener who we have with us now is Pam Danaher. Pam, how are you this afternoon? Pam Danaher. Very well. Thanks, Roger. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So Pam is in Northern California, where those everyone in the States and probably everyone who follows the States knows the weather and storms have been dreadful. I am putting out her Facebook all safe um, alert for her at least the friends and colleagues who watch the podcast. And uh, we have Jorn with us this afternoon or this evening in California, in Germany. Also, Jorn, how are you this evening? Jorn Schattenberg. I'm I'm fine. My day is almost done, Pam. I'm nine hours ahead of you, so quite a spread this time, but happy to have you here. Thanks for joining. And um, and, and Jorn would like everybody to know, although you can't see this, that he has finished decorating his uh, office, which I commented on last week being barren, put up all his New York City and U.S. prints, including a couple of his marathon finishes. So he's good for everything life has to throw at him. So, Pam, uh, since you've not been with us before, do me a favor, tell, take a couple of minutes and tell our audience about you, what your work is and kind of what your career is and how you got to where you are. And then when you're done, I'd love for you to share with our audience one thing that they wouldn't know or necessarily suspect about you if you didn't tell them. You're up against some tough competition. Let's see how you do on that one. Your floor. Thanks very much, Roger. So I'm here today representing Turns Pharmaceuticals, where I lead the regulatory function. I am a basic scientist by training, a molecular biologist by training, but have spent the majority of my career in drug development in actually the regulatory arena. So early in my career, moved out of the lab and into the part of the company that you know, helps interpret the regulatory guidances as it relates to the work that's being done and and helps facilitate interactions between the company and the regulatory bodies. And it's been overall a wonderful experience and the opportunity to work across many therapeutic areas, including in my particular case, many years in infectious disease, HIV in particular, and also nephrology, uh, where I think we'd all agree there's a lot of unmet need. Other gastroenterology indications such as inflammatory bowel disease, again, where there's a lot of unmet need, and more recently entered into liver disease and NASH. And such an exciting time to be in this area with all these new data coming to light and lots of work to be done. One thing I've learned in my career is it does take a village. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that we'll all have to come together on the back end of these huge achievements we've seen by you know recent developments with resmitaram and, and certainly also very encouraging data with the beta-colic acid. And so you know now 
now we roll up our sleeves and the tough work begins. So very happy to be here. I think one thing about me, folks may not know, um, not sure that I have anything as quite as sublime, Roger, as others may have brought to you. Maybe something as simple as actually Canadian born and became an American citizen over the course of my career and happy to be hailed from both countries and, and to bring that dynamic and perspective. So we're, uh, Pam, where in Canada were you raised? I in Montreal. So in how many languages are you fluent? It's becoming more and more only one, but it's, it's wonderful to go back and visit and have that opportunity. And for any of your listeners who've never had a chance to visit, Montreal is a wonderful city. So I hope everybody has a chance to experience it. Actually, I think Quebec is a pretty fantastic province. I spent a little bit of time in Montreal and also Quebec. And my grandfather, who emigrated to the States, came from Belgium, where what he used to do every summer was go to the ocean and eat palm frites on boardwalks. And after he moved to the States, they used to go to the Gaspé because it was the one place in America or North America that he could do the same thing and speak French. He was pretty happy about that. Canada's an amazing country. So thank you for that. And with that, let me just icebreaker question, okay? We're, I guess, a week and a half out from Nashtag at this point. And I'm wondering for each of the three of us, what impression has been reinforced? Something you took out of the meeting that was reinforced over the last week and a half. So let me start and follow up the thoughts I had coming home back from Nashtag was, of course, dominated by the progress we're making in the field, you know, with the positive phase three data, as Pam mentioned. But then being back into clinic, I realized, you know, from an implementation point of view, we're still at the beginning of this. As Pam said, I think we have to really roll up our sleeves and educate people out there to um, identify those patients we might have treatment for soon uh, on how to identify them. And I just finished recording actually two hours ago, an educational format, CME format we did here in Germany with somebody speaking on CED, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, GI oncology. And I think these fields are so much more advanced or have a totally different view on how to identify patients, how the patients present the severity of the disease. So albeit the progress in, in the medical arena, I think we still need some work on the pathway development. And I, I do see important steps being made, but that's that's work ahead of us. I would definitely agree. And thank you, Jorn, for mentioning some of the parallels, right, between some other disease states. And, you know, one thing that's really notable and remarkable, I think, when you compare and contrast potentially inflammatory bowel disease to the NASH situation, it's really the symptomatic component component, right? where perhaps the diagnosis does involve, you know, imaging uh, other NITs in the case of Crohn's disease, for example, biopsy could be a parallel, but also this overlay of, of symptoms. And I think that's where we really struggle, obviously, with the earlier phase of the spectrum of NASH, that there is this asymptomatic component. So when we, we look ahead to the work to be done, what's particularly challenging looking through a regulatory lens is how these products are to be labeled and where the risk benefit from a regulatory side point of view is positive. This is something where NITs potentially come in, and I think we heard a lot about that at NASHTAG. It's something that will have to be worked through. So I guess my impression is not so different from either of those, which is that, and this is one of the questions that I sent to you, Pam, so I'm giving away at least one of my biases. I said, said this on the podcast already. Uh, Scott Freeman used the phrase, the straitjacket of biopsy. He was talking, I think, although Scott is such a sophisticated and complex guy, you can never be certain where the outer boundaries of his vision are. But in the context, every time he's used it, he was talking about clinical trial development and clinical trial issues. And while that might be the case, it's struck me that biopsy has straitjacketed us in so many more ways than that, that it, it's left us, as Jorn describes correctly, I think, woefully behind even the starting line in terms of how do we actually get these drugs to the right patients 
and educate communities in the right way as we come out of the box. That, I think, is going to be an immense challenge. It is a challenge, but it's the field is prepared. I mean, that's the other thing I'm taking away because, as Pam mentioned, you know, we have these initiatives. We're defining and developing new biomarkers. We're linking them to outcomes, so that helps us to talk to the regulators. We are educating the peers on how to identify the sickest patients. And when I talk to my colleagues now, I always highlight the pre-serotic, serotic patients that are at greatest risk. So these cases, we have the tools, and now we need the buy-in of the field and the education. And that takes some time, but we're ready to roll it out. And because it would be much easier, it'll be great if we have a label at one point. And as someone on this podcast said, I think if we have shiny brochures and we can actually walk to the people, it'll be much easier. Then. I agree. And I think the description straitjacket is remarkably apt, right? Because it's a restraint, but it's also constraining. And it is constraining, as you said, Roger, on so many parties. And it's really right through the spectrum. So the trials themselves are a challenge. Interpretation of the data is a challenge. Generalizability of the data and information back to the patient community is a challenge. And then the regulatory process is also challenged. And then finally, even from the point of view of the patient community, you know, understanding how to interpret these data and even access to biopsy, if that's a needed procedure, can be a challenge across a diverse socioeconomic background. Yes, I agree. A couple of other ways that I think became clear at NASHTAG is investors are going to keep being hung up on what payers are going to do about biopsy. Now, that I think speaks to a couple of fallacies. Number one, the belief that payers will do anything, anytime they can to limit use of drugs so they make more money. I, know, I think payers are more sophisticated than that, or as a medical director friend of mine put it, I didn't go to med school to work for an insurance company, even though that was what he wound up doing. Biopsy, to some degree, casts a pall over some of the further removed, if you will, investors certainly, and maybe some of the insurers, over how is this disease going to be managed? Because biopsy is just not a feasible solution. I think everyone who's close to this knows it, including a lot of the payers, because they would have to pay for an awful lot of biopsies, um, which is not a good thing. By the way, my favorite statement about the straitjacket of biopsy came from Donna Cryer, who said that she thought it was a double metaphor, in part because it was constraining and in part because it was psychotic. Do you trust Donna to say that? But I want to share it because I just thought it was pretty brilliant in the moment. All right, Pam, I'd love for you to share generally your impressions of the meeting and, well, A, the meeting first, and then and then the coverage of the meeting. And then I sent you a list of a few questions that we might want to specifically talk about, but let's, let's be general first and then we can go to specific. Maybe one of the most impactful impressions from the meeting, and it really was right from the very opening opening of the reception was just a, a sense of buoyancy that, you know, the meeting was opened with a champagne toast to celebrate, you know, the achievements in the clinical work and setting the stage for us all to move forward in that spirit. And so a very nice sense of optimism. I think it's been pointed out that the top line data are one thing, of course, as always in life, the devil's in the details. And everybody is, of course, also interested to see the more detailed data that will emerge from the study, acknowledging that it's on going and the blind must be safeguarded, you know, things that will help aid interpretation and, and help move other initiatives forward, things along the lines of correlation of the efficacy findings with NITs, for example, I think is one thing that's been highlighted is very important. Deeper dive into safety, all, the, all those kinds of things that will help inform us. So that spirit of optimism was borne out through the entire two days of NASHTAG. So a very nice atmosphere, collaborative in spirit and um, setting the stage. I 
also was struck by a lot of progress in the field around non-invasive tests, as always a nice readout from the Nimble Consortium, from Litmus, other efforts that are being moved forward, including the nail NIT effort. And I think that this is really very encouraging for all the reasons we just discussed of the constraints of biopsy. Uh, NASHTEC is a special conference based on intensity and interactions that are happening. So again, very energizing. Uh, and I agree it sets the stage for the rest of the year. And now we're looking forward to, you know, to see it rolling out. If you heard the interview with Donna Cryer as part of our coverage, then she actually expressed less optimism, significant optimism, but less optimism than anybody else did. And it was actually around a topic that you raised in your note to me, and then you just kind of raised on this podcast, which is simply having good top-line data on efficacy and safety, or at least meeting FDA preset standards on efficacy and safety, didn't work out so well for NASH two years ago, through almost three years ago now. And so the question is, what are the steps that we as an industry, I mean, you know, I assume Magical will know how to do their work, but what are the steps that we as the rest of the industry need to be taking right now to help regulatory science get a foothold and deliver messages in ways that are going to be supportive of what's going on? I think it's a great observation and a great question, Roger. You know, here again, we, we return to sort of kind of the straitjacket image and metaphor. And, you know, it's constraining even on the regulators themselves. We highlighted the distinction that some of their disease states, in addition to other imaging technology, for example, it's in concert with how a patient feels, functions, or survives. It's in concert with potentially symptoms, for example, clinical signs and symptoms uh, that are can be readily measured and perhaps there's validated questionnaires for that purpose. Nothing like this exists, obviously, um, for non-serotic NASH with fibrosis, that generally speaking, it's a reliance on, at this stage, from a regulatory science point of view, it's a reliance on biopsy. And this is constraining for the regulators as well, because it's difficult. They make available an opportunity to progress programs based on surrogate endpoints in situations where, and, and guidance that lays this out very thoughtfully, that there's simply too long a time course for disease uh, you know, to progress to outcomes. And so therefore, there's opportunity to look instead at surrogates. Um, and, and there's some very prescribed criteria that need to be met in order for a surrogate to be utilized. So it's forward-looking in that regard. However, the challenge then comes that from a regulatory point of view, decisions have to be made based on something other than how a patient feels, functions, or survives. So it's it's constraining right from the heart of it on all parties involved. And then I think your question, Roger, if, if I remember rightly, is you know how, how do we all move forward? I think it takes a village. Um, we, we've highlighted a lot of the main players here. We've highlighted industry. We've highlighted the regulators. We've highlighted payers and the clinical community, of course, as the regulatory review, both in the U.S. and Europe and any other jurisdictions, progresses for these molecules going forward in the coming 12 to 24 months, we all need to be um, engaged, to be supportive. There will be um, most likely scientific advisories of some kind or another. There needs to be a full engagement and there needs to be a thoughtful approach all the way through to the end to the payers, as you've highlighted, Roger. I don't think this is going to be easy. I think I opened this by saying we got to roll our sleeves up. I think we all got to roll our sleeves up here. It's going to be a challenge. But 
you know, we're up for it. Uh, and it's going to be very rewarding, obviously. Let me just ask, Pam, you have much more regulatory experience than I do. From my point of view, we have discussed, and that's some years ago, the approvable endpoint or as a conditional for a conditional approval, which is histological benefit. And we've seen that in two cases now. But then we have the safety profile and sort of safety concerns in some cases where this benefit safety ratio then becomes less attractive for the regulators. And that's why maybe the first time through we didn't get this approval. Something I didn't see factoring in is yet quality of life. I can speak from a German perspective. That would be something where the payers would be willing to spend money on, while I think the other endpoints that are surrogates are not as well faced. And that, that's a whole different story in, in, in Europe, maybe uh, compared uh, to the US. But if we have those three things, we have efficacy, we have safety, and we have, let's say, quality of life. That's a pretty strong package to take to the regulators. And where do you see the biggest barrier then in, in, in getting a drug actually agreeable uh, Uh, approved. The regulatory approval obviously is a big piece, but it's not the only piece. It's also translating that through into clinical care settings, and then it's also the payer component, right? So it's I think it's it's each one of those. They're all equally important. Now, obviously, one has to precede the others, but I, I think they are all equally important. I do think it's a challenge to establish risk benefit in the absence of true clinical endpoints where you've made a conscious decision that, well, we're going to wait for the clinical outcomes. It does become a challenge to have a really in-depth benefit risk assessment. I think that's where it's not simple. You know, you have to consider the scope of the labeling. It's just not as straightforward when there are not clinical endpoints. I think that's a generally accepted uh, fact. And that's why it's so important that we keep patients in the trials, continue these fully enrolled and, and bring them to an endpoint or to the to the end of study uh, at one point. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, when I first started working, talking to this community, people said they thought they were going to be the next coming of the statins. And one of the points I made was that if you look at the growth trajectory of statin use, it was driven largely by outcomes studies that proved clinical benefit at endpoint. So we're away from that. And we're going to have to do a lot of this work without that because a lot more people need these drugs a lot more than anybody needed a statin per se when they were launched. So I think that's going to be both an opportunity and a challenge all at once around that set of issues. So Pam, a question. In the note I sent over to you about things to think about for this conversation, I mentioned really three things we've not touched on yet much. Two, having to do with, to me, with the straight jacket of biopsy, which is, we all talk about non-invasive tests, but if the adjective you use is non-invasive, then the contrast is biopsy. And we're going to have to start thinking about the value of these tests, not in terms of they're better than biopsy or different than biopsy, but how do we think of them in their own right? Question one. Question two, back at Donna's psychotic reference, the straight jacket of biopsy is, is very much anti-patient centric. And this is a disease of patients. So there's a question of how do you see us becoming more patient centric? Now, you could choose either or both of those or say pass and we'll go on to something else. But uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'm happy to open it up here with regard to NITs in their own right. I, I think you actually had a, quite a thoughtful conversation at the end of year uh, podcast. And I think that was yourself, Yorn, together with Ian Rowe and kind of talking about the transition of patients from primary care to secondary care. And, you know, are they coming with a suspected diagnosis or are they coming with a, you know, a number, right? A, a value of an NIT that is concerning. So I think maybe we preempted a little bit of the conversation with that discussion you had at the end of your podcast. So, so that, that's an interesting thought, Pam. When I raised it in the first place, I think my context was a little different. Not to disagree with you, I think what you say is absolutely dead on. It's just, so here's the kind of thing I was thinking of. We're going to have liquid biopsies and then we're going to have imaging tests. Those are different. 
we're going to have tests that can get read out in the physician's or reported out in the physician's office, either because they're in-office imaging or because they're computations of blood work that you would have gotten otherwise, like FIB4, versus tests that have to be done specifically and then sent back. Even even if LabCorp can reflex an ELF or Quest can reflex an ELF, will that be in the hands of the practitioner when the patient is there? Because one of the points our colleague Louise makes frequently is that the ability to show a patient a scan or give them a number when they're in the office and when you can coach them on what it means, gives them something to work on. Whereas if you call them back a week later and say, hey, here's your result, that's a much different process. So those are a couple of thoughts I had in mind in terms of how are we actually going to use these things. But I'm wondering what the inter- what you think the intersect is between Ian's point and that one, both of you, either of you. Yeah. So, well, from my perspective, I think, you know, the discussion we had is um, how do we see the right patients? That, of course, comes from a speciality service where you want to see a lot of the right patients and not so many of the ones you can't offer anything to or that would need your uh, care. So then you spend money on diagnostics that you wouldn't want. So here is always the difficulty. So we need a different type of tests to perform in these different settings. Uh, that is one. You're mentioning the value of the point of care tests, Roger, which help us to counsel the patient while they're in the office. That is good. The point is none of these are currently at the point where we can use them to, you know, judge on, on, on drug response or something we're doing. And, and that's the, the, the difficulties in the discussions with the regulators. We're setting the right studies up to answer the questions, which test is linked to which outcome and how, if it changes, how much it has to change to consider this beneficial for the patient. But the discussions on the biomarkers and in the different arenas, diagnostic biomarkers, therapy or predictive biomarkers, which drugs should be used, prognostic biomarkers, that's just the complexity of the field that sometimes also, I think, in the discussions is a, is a little confusing or mixed up. I, I'm just thinking we're jumping the gun a little bit with wanting to implement the, the right biomarker for, for, the, for the drugs. And I think the phase three trials will help us to identify those markers. Uh, we'll just have to wait a little bit longer. And then, of course, the initiatives like NAIL, NIT, or some of the NIT research consortia. Listening to you, Arna, what came to mind was a comment you made several times recently, which is it's not clear that we need new any more NITs. Now, eventually we'll get better ones, but the challenge right now isn't that we need new ones, it's we need to figure out exactly what to do with the ones that we have. And I think that statement speaks articulately to, to what the question, what the challenges behind the question are. So that's great. And thank you for that. So Pam, I, I sent you two other questions if you want to comment on either of them. The one about patient centricity and the one about where you how you see the evolution of combination therapies emerging in this market. I know that's a, that's an area where turns has significant interest. So just curious. Yeah, thank you. You know, maybe just a, we could have a quick discussion on, on the patient centricity. I know, again, just looking through the regulatory science lens, obviously a patient-centric approach, strongly encouraged and facilitated. I think we've seen the Global Liver Institute do a very nice patient-focused drug development session a little more than a year ago now and was quite informative. And I do think as medications are rolled out, this would be a very useful thing to keep an eye from a patient point of view. How is it going? You know, are, are the needs being met? Is the information available? I think you mentioned earlier the glossy brochures, you know, disease awareness, things of that nature. It's something that there'll have to be continued attention paid to whether or not the end goal is really being met as these drugs become available. So I think that's a very important conversation. That's actually a pretty complete statement, Pam. I couldn't agree with you more. If you want to go on a combination therapies, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm happy to comment and interested to hear also Jorn's point of view. One thing that's striking, obviously, is really, really the heterogeneity of disease. And I think that 
speaks to uh, you know potential utility for a combination approach. It, that that might be a combination right out of the shoot as the starting therapy. It might be uh, add on, for example. We've seen that in many other therapeutic areas, beginning with one particular mechanism of action and adding on another therapy to supplement if needed if a complete response is not observed with the initial therapy. I note also that th- there are different modalities. Obviously, we have potentially injectable drugs. We have other sponsors working on oral drugs. Their uptake and their utility, it, it, the modality will play in to some extent. So this is where it behooves us to make a number of treatment options available. You know, from a combination point of view, that is, as you've mentioned, Roger, something we've been very focused on at turns. And again, the heterogeneity of the disease, I think, really lends itself to potentially requiring more than one mechanism of action to really suppress the disease. From the pathophysiological point of view of this disease, Pam, I think I'm very uh, fascinated by the combination approach. And I'd like to congratulate uh, turns uh, for taking that view and, and look. And it's multiple pathways that fit into the phenotype, begets in Injury, injury becomes regeneration, regeneration becomes fibrosis over time, and it's just the complexity of the disease that's easily dissectable in an animal model, but much more complex in the human uh, situation that speaks to the heart of my clinical understanding of it, that just putting out the fire on a vehicle that has a certain momentum um, is still going to make the vehicle hit the wall, but the fire is out. That's not a perfect uh, transition, but it, you know, it speaks to the need to address multiple pathways and to prevent disease progression. And for that, I believe in combination therapies. Now, it's more difficult to set up in clinical trials, the multiple multiple arms you might need, the benefit of each single compound over placebo versus the combination that has to be shown. And I think I, I know you uh, have been thinking a lot about that and, and, and turns how to set it up and, and, and get a good trial design for that is a challenge. Um, but overall, I think that's very appealing. And then we're seeing the of the of the classes that have been successful so far, the GL P1 and the and the thyroid hormone receptor beta agonist. Thinking of turns, I think you are in a good position to to follow up uh, in, the, in that dynamic and build on that on the data that's been generated. So, Yorn, here's my metaphor for the day. It comes from you. You said that the vehicle hits the wall, but the fire is out. If the vehicle is the liver, then to use a very American metaphor, the good news is that the body is its own body shop, right? Which is any other vehicle, you would have to take it to a repair shop and spend thousands of dollars and lose your car for a couple of months. And what you got back might not be anything like what you started with, but with the liver until you get fairly far down the chain, the body actually has the ability to regenerate, which is what makes this disease so special and so challenging all at the same time. I, I think you phrased in a way that all the listeners would understand it. That that metaphor just came to my head and I'm not sure it translated well into English, but... Uh... <laughs> no, actually, I think I think the body is its own body shop translates just fine into English. I'm not sure how that does out of English, but in English, I think it's good. All right. So, so Pam, it's been fantastic having you with us today. Anything else uh, you want to you want anything else you want to share? Uh, no, thanks for the opportunity to participate and you know, looking forward to 2023. My, my comment and thoughts to you, Pam, in turns is uh, uh, congratulations again on the drug development program. I, I would want to, and I know you're thinking that way, also see a commitment in the biomarker development. It's going to be so important for the field and alongside of your clinical trial program, we'll learn so much in particular looking at combinations, which could be a different story for some of those NITs. Yeah, I think that's true. And you and frankly, the slides that Naeem showed that you, you and I talked with uh, Dean Tai about, some degree changed my optic on all of this, which is the idea that you could map out the liver and figure out where in the liver different drugs were working better, put a whole different foundation in terms of on, on combination therapy. My attitude is always, if you can see it, it's a lot more real than if you can simply explain it. So I thought that was pretty cool. So Pam, 
Thanks for joining. Thanks to Turns for doing the uh, the uh, podcast club. And Pam was not the Turns person who sent me notes talking about how much they liked our coverage. Um, but but so thanks to your, your colleagues who did that. I'm not saying you didn't like it. I'm just saying you weren't the one who sent the note. So thanks for that. And uh, I look forward to having you back with us another time because over the course of the year, we're going to be diving into this whole question of regulatory science and the question of combination therapies. I can see you having a part in both those conversations. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation. Or, if that doesn't work, send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first non-NASH tech content of 2023. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.